Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Research indicates that showing and sharing gratitude helps us improve our health, handle adversity, and create stronger relationships. Today's guest is speaker, author, and consultant Chester Elton. In our interview, Chester shares how leading with gratitude can bring extraordinary business results. We discuss some of the myths about gratitude that are holding leaders back, and Chester shares the most powerful gratitude practices that can both help you create a grateful life and excel in the workplace. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Chester, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Hey, delighted to be here. Thanks for the invite. Your interview is the final episode in season eight. We have the theme of leadership, and I'm very curious how you got interested in the topic of leadership. You know, that's a, a great question. I don't know that leadership was, was really my focus initially. It was all about, you know, gratitude and culture. And then, of course, you, you dive into that and you realize that it's the leader that really sets the tone, that if it doesn't start at the top, your odds of success go way down. Adrian and I, my co-author, and we've been writing and researching together now for over 20 years, we always laugh that when we go to speak at a conference, an association conference, so you get a bunch of different companies in the room, right? Inevitably, somebody comes up and says, oh, man, I wish you'd talk to my CEO. I'd say, why? You know, say, oh, our culture is just horrible. It just really stinks. And we always say, your CEO will never talk to us because culture and people don't matter to them. And we had enough of those conversations, right, where we said, look, leadership really is the key to everything. And if it doesn't start there, your odds of success go way down. So we kind of, you know, didn't start with leadership. We sort of had a road towards leadership, which I think is, has, has been a wonderful, a wonderful journey for us. You and Adrian have written a number of books together. One of them is Leading with Gratitude, and I'd like to spend our time talking about that book. I think it's an incredible book and very important. What does leading with gratitude mean to you? Funny, you know, Adrian and I have written 14 books together. And if you asked us which is our favorite book, we would say Leading with Gratitude. Isn't that interesting? If you asked us what was our most important book, it's probably our last book, which is Anxiety at Work, which deals with, with mental health. The thing is, is this common thread of gratitude is through all our books, you know, whether it's leadership or teams or culture, we found that in the extraordinary leaders, in the extraordinary teams and extraordinary cultures, there was that common thread of, of gratitude. And leading with gratitude to me is, is simply be kind, you know, be human, be considerate. My, one of my favorite chapters in the book is assume positive intent. And to me, that really does sum up leading with gratitude, that you believe that, you know, 99.9% .9 of the people that work with and for you are coming to work and they want to do a good job, right? And in trying to do a good job, they're going to make mistakes as we all do. And when you assume positive intent, it's like, hey, I know you're a good person. I know you're trying hard. You've made a mistake. Let's solve the problem and move on. Now, if that person makes that same mistake 10 times in a row, you, you have a different conversation, right? The idea of assuming positive intent and being kind to me is leading with gratitude. Now, just an adjoinder to that, sometimes leaders say, oh, well, the people are gonna walk all over you. <laughs> you know, you're, you're nice, you assume bothering. And it's so funny that it's exactly the opposite, actually. When you think about the people that you work the hardest for, 
it's the people that you knew cared about you, uh, not just as a worker bee, also as a person. And the strongest leaders that we were able to interview and whatnot were the ones that led the most with gratitude. Isn't, isn't that interesting? Recognition, appreciation, care by leaders. These are the terms that people typically use. We don't talk about gratitude. And that's why I asked the question, what does gratitude mean to you? And it seems like it encompasses all of those things. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, Don. You know, the more that I, I thought about leading with gratitude and, and the kindness that comes with that, it leads to a leadership brand of service and 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 reaching out. Now, the part about service that I that I love so much is that when you take a look at that more and more, you know, the servant leader, the, the kind leader, and so on, it really does lead not to just a better way to lead. It, it's just a better way to live. And I think if the the pandemic and turning the world upside down, if they're the big lesson of many, I think that I took away from that is, is that we have one life and we spend so much time at work that the relationships at work, the, the, the mission, the vision of what we do at work is more important now than it has ever been. Because for, for many of us for a long time, the, the, the delineation between work and our personal lives was just walking through your office door right? Because we all had home offices. So this idea, again, of, of being kind, be considerate, be human, be vulnerable. Let's treat each other with respect. Let's treat each other with kindness. Let's treat each other with, you know, mutual respect and assume positive intent, I think is a wonderful pathway and a wonderful journey for the best and the brightest and, and the new leadership that, that's coming into to business and life. The start of your book or chapter one of your book is called The Gratitude Gap. What is the gratitude gap? Most leaders believe that they're above average in giving gratitude and, and you know, recognition and respect. And it's that, again, a little bit of that self-absorption, right? And I think it was around over 70% said, oh, yeah, I'm killing it. I'm the most grateful. I, I love my people and they love me. What's the story Adrian loves to tell from the office, the, the, you know, the manager in the office where he says, he's being interviewed and says, do you want your people to love you or to fear you? And he says, I want my people to be afraid of how much they love me. <laughs> Michael, you know, from Michael the, Scott. Yeah, Michael Scott. Michael Scott. D yeah. Dunder and so, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, that gratitude gap is, I think I'm really good at it. And that was, it was well over 70%. And then we interviewed their direct reports and only 23% agreed with them. That, that's that gap. And so when we look at gratitude and, and recognition, appreciation, all those wonderful words that kind of come together, you realize that you really need to be very intentional about it and you need to be very disciplined about it and, and, and create, you know, opportunities and, and rituals. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of personal rituals. You know, how do you start your day? How do you end your day? What are some of the things you do with your team on a regular basis that become traditions and, and rituals and, and, and create? these wonderful cultures of gratitude and, and, and traditions of, of kindness and giving. Is feeling a sense of gratitude a human need? Oh, I don't think there's any question. You know, it's that Maslow's pyramid, the self-actualization at the top of the top of the pyramid. That's all about feeling valued and, and of worth and that what I do is important. You know, Adrian and I wrote a wonderful book 
still available to find bookstores everywhere, by the way, <laughs> called All In, How the Best Leaders Create a Culture of Belief that Drives Big Results. And in there, our definition of high-performance culture, or what we call an all-in culture, is I believe what I do matters and I make a difference. And I think that's that's really key. You know, I've got the tools to to deliver on the promise of whatever it is our, our company has promised. I believe emotionally that it's, that it's important. I'm, I'm making a difference. And then I always add to that. And when I make a difference, it's noticed and celebrated. Somebody said, hey, that was amazing what you did there, you know, and, and reinforced that we all have a need to believe that we are valued. It's being remembered. It's being grateful. It's relationships. It's yeah, no, listen, we, it, an intrinsic human need, it's probably one of our greatest to know that we're remembered and loved and that we matter. And so you've worked with all of these great organizations and the ones where gratitude is a firm part of their culture, what sorts of benefits do they realize? What sort of benefits does that organization realize? The business results are remarkable. Retention is very high. Customer satisfaction and customer loyalty are very high. The return on equity is three times higher in organizations where you can take a look at those surveys and people feel valued at work. Their voice matters, their voice is heard, and so on and so on. And it makes perfect sense, right, that if I'm excited to come to work every day, I feel valued at work every day, my voice and my opinion matters. I like the people that I work with. You know, all these interesting studies, too, of the ripple effect into your personal life, which we've already kind of touched on a little bit. But if it doesn't produce a superior business result, why would you do it? Now, look, if, if the data said, by the way, the best way to get their best return on investment, the best way to attract and retain the brightest people is to just put the fear of God in them every day and beat the crap out of them as soon as they step in the door. Well, we do that, <laughs> right? The fact is, is that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. It can, it can produce very short-term results, clearly. And so, you know, that's what I love about sort of our formulas. We go where the data takes us. And the data says, do these things, you will have more success. You will make more money, you will gain more customers, and you'll retain the best and the brightest. The, the sad thing, Don, is, is that even with this literally avalanche of, of data and case studies, it's common sense that unfortunately is still uncommonly practiced in the business world. And that's, you know, in, in a way, my kids say, but dad, isn't that good news for you? Like you've got, you'll always have work. <laughs> So you go, yeah, the upside is, yeah, I'll, I'll always have a place to land. Well, you, you mentioned fear as a motivator, and it is a great motivator, short term. Like we've seen it in a lot of different organizations and countries and in different places where citizens are forced to do certain things and they do it. But like you said, it's a, it's a short term motivator. There are a number of other myths that you outline in the book, and I'd like you to talk about what some of those myths are. Yeah, you know, one of my favorites is I, I just, uh, it's just not me. I'm just not feeling it. I, I you know, I'll, I'll come across as a phony. But one of the things that I, I love about the myth around that, well, I tell the story of, of, of my wife, you know, after our kids, we just have four wonderful children and we decided that was going to be our family and she wanted to get in shape. And so she decided she wanted to run. I hate running, by the way. I'll chase a tennis ball all day, but just let's go for a run to me is like, this <laughs> torture. Anyway, so she gets up and she starts to run. And she's not very good, clearly. You know, can't run very far, can't run very long. Anyway, she, she was a woman that ran. Now, the more she ran 
and the more research she did and, and things that she did, found a partner to run with, all that good stuff, started to take the little goo with her. Well, there was that tipping point where you know she did it because she had to do it. So clearly she went from a woman that used to kind of run and you know not enjoy it very much to that tipping point where she was a runner. And, and that's the, the point about gratitude is when you first start to do it, sure, you're not going to be very good and it's going to be a little uncomfortable. And maybe people are going to say, well, he's kind of disingenuous. It, it, that's okay. You'll go from somebody who just does it to that's who you are. And I, and I love that transition. And it comes through discipline and, and setting goals and deciding this is going to be my brand. This is what I'm going to do. You know, we had one leader that put 10 pennies in his left pocket and he set a goal to have 10 positive interactions with his people every day. And he would keep track by moving a penny from his left pocket to his right pocket. I guarantee you those first few days, he didn't get to 10 or for first few weeks. The more he did it, the more, the better he got. And then it wasn't just what he did. It's who he was. And by the way, that same manager had extraordinary results in retention and engagement and productivity and profit. Those stories hit home for me because I, I started something a number of years ago, probably five years ago or so, where I would tell my friends after we talked or after we had lunch together or whatever that I loved them. And that was something new for me. And it was new for them too. Part of it, the reason why I wanted to do this is to remind them that, you know, we've known each other 15 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever. I'm grateful that you are in my life and I'm going to let you know that. I'm not going to just show it. I'm going to let you know that. It was super awkward at first. In fact, one time I, I called a friend. I'd known her for 25 or 30 years. I told her that I, you know, I love her. And then I called her back and I apologized. And I said, I just want you to know that this is something that I'm doing with my close friends. And, and, and she was like, oh, I love it. Keep doing it. It's, it's great. You know, and Don, you, you make a good point. I mean, how many stories have we heard that when someone that's near and dear to you passes away, what are some of your biggest regrets? I wish I'd told them more often how much they meant to me. So, you know, limit your regrets. Tell people you love them. I, I've got to share with you this fun study. They did this study on smiling. And they said, you know, when you smile, it triggers certain things in your brain and it releases these you know, positive endorphins. And and so they wanted to do a study. They said, okay, so a genuine smile makes people happy. So they did this little video and they had three groups. And the control group was they just let people watch the video and it was kind of fun. And then, you know, people would smile or, or, or not. Then they had another group where they said, look, for this, in the entire video, you have to frown the whole time. You have to consciously make a frown and, and their attitudes and whatnot after the video. And then they had a third group and they said, you have to force yourself to smile through the whole video. And they monitored their brain activity. Well, what they found on it was fascinating that the, the natural and genuine smile and the forced smile had the same impact. Really? Isn't that interesting? That is interesting. I, I wouldn't have expected that. No, neither would I, because you say, wow, that's a fake smile. That can't possibly, you know, that's disingenuine. And so they said, yeah, if you want to, literally, if you want to cheer yourself up, force yourself to smile. Now, this is where the video comes in. And it was so funny. You can Google it. Pencil smile, I think it would get you there. This guy goes to Edinburgh, which apparently is one of the most unhappiest places in the United Kingdom for whatever reasons, probably because it's overcast for like 300, 
40 days a year or something like that. So he says, hey, would you like to have a little joy? So he comes up and he's, there's these two constables standing there and they're like, you know, what, what, what? And he gives them a pencil. He says, put it in your teeth and bite down on it. Well, when you do that, you can't help but smile. And he says, just hold it there for, for, for four or five seconds. He goes, how does that make you feel? And they go, better. <laughs> so, you know, how fun that literally if you're just, you know, having one of those days and you want to cheer yourself up, if you can't force yourself to smile, bite down on a pen or a pencil, just like that. It'll make you talk funny, which is also <laughs> something to make you smile and, and cheer yourself up. So, yeah, this idea of kindness and gratitude, it, and it calms you down. And to your point, our latest work on anxiety in the workplace. We have eight strategies on how to deal with that. And the eighth strategy is gratitude. You know, be grateful. We, we talked about a, a couple of the myths. Fear is the best motivator and they'll think I'm phony or they'll think I'm bogus. I do want to touch on one other one, which is it's all about the Benjamins. And before we get into that, a quick story. I, I met with somebody I mentor a little bit or, you know, help guide her career. And she was miserable in her job and she's making a nice living. And she basically told me what it would take for her to remain miserable financially. And I was just shocked. You know, she, she, there's, there's actually a price tag on that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a price tag. It was a price tag and, and it was like a 20% raise or something like that. You know, it was a, it was a big amount of money. And I just said, is that really how you want to think about this? And, you know, first of all, this is a, a habit that we have to break, right? Don't make this about the money. Make this about the impact that you can make, the fulfillment you're going to get. This is the wrong conversation to have. And so I, I want you to talk about the relationship to money and why gratitude is more important. Yeah, it's it's a great conversation to have. And I, I love the way you coached up that young woman. You know, what's the price of happiness? A 20% raise? Really? For your happiness, like every day, you don't have an awful day at work and then go off in the evening and have a great evening with your friends or your family or whomever, right? Like that, it's for, for 20%. We, we call that the ripple effect, right? So one of my favorite data points out of the U University of California is when you're happy and engaged at work, you're 150% more likely to be happy and engaged in your personal life. Well, of course, the opposite is true. So if you're willing to sell your happiness for a 20% raise and literally be miserable all day, you don't think that's going to ripple into your personal life? Of course it will. You know, my grandma had a great expression about surrounding yourself with good people. You know, said, surround yourself with good people. And said, yeah, but shouldn't you go out and, and you know, th those people that really kind of need your help, you know, those, those, those wretched, miserable, evil souls? And she'd say, Jess, you can't live in a sewer and not end up smelling like one. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgot that. You can't live in a sewer and not end up smelling like you may think that you're bringing the light. They're just going to drag you down, you know, so, so so be careful. The great Stephen Covey would say, what do you want people to say at your wake? You know, what do you want people to say at your funeral? And I always like to say, what do you want etched on your tombstone? You know, I mean, this young executive that you're coaching on her tombstone, do you want to say miserable, but rich? <laughs> it's not. Come on. It's not. No, it's, it's, it's not. And isn't it interesting, though? We live in such a capitalist 
society that everything, you know, we even have that expression. Everybody's got their price. Everybody's got their price. Well, you can't make them do that. Oh, yeah, you can. And then it manifests itself into, you know, behavior like, well, I'm going to go buy this new bag or a pair of shoes or a new car or whatever. And, and so you're getting this sense of self-worth and validation that's really, uh, you know, runs counter to what the human needs are that we talked about earlier. Yeah, the, the hedonistic treadmill, right? One of my great mentors who's absolutely changed my life is Marshall Goldsmith, you know, arguably the greatest executive coach of all time. And if you don't think that, ask him, he'll tell you. <laughs> he's, he's wonderful <laughs> about that. And it's one of the things I love about Marshall. He's just so genuine and so transparent. Well, he says, look, there's one thing we all have in common. You know, whether you're washing cars or captains of industry or whatever it is your occupation is. He says, we all just want to be happy. And so often we fall into that Western disease of I'll be happy when. That hedonistic treadmill. Well, if I made 20% more, I'd stay. Because, because wealth will bring me happiness. Right? When I get a nicer car, when I have a bigger house, when I have nicer clothes, wh whatever. Right. I've got a Tesla. You know what? I need a Tesla with more range. <laughs> right. I mean, there's always something, there's always something more. Instead of, you know, living in the in the moment, let's just stop and enjoy this moment. Look, look at the sunshine. Look at those flowers. Isn't it wonderful that we had this? I thought, I gotta do that more often, you know. And what's the price tag on that? Nothing. You know, and I I, I love that admonition. I'll be happy when. Don't get caught in that trap. Thank you. And it is one of those myths that I hope we can break. And I've heard Marshall Goldsmith speak, and you know, back back when I last heard him, he said eighty five thousand dollars was the threshold. Once you make more than eighty five thousand dollars, you'll be no more happy. So let's talk about approaches for showing gratitude, because you've broken it into spotting great work and then creating effective ways for leaders to voice and show their thanks. Let's start with the spotting of of great work. What, what can leaders do or what should leaders be doing? Yeah, I, I, you've probably found this to be very true as well, is that the, the best leaders that we had the privilege to know and to interview and, and so on were very curious. They, they had a high curiosity level. And the, the first thing that we talk about in, in seeing what's going on is soliciting and acting on input. Talk to your people. Ask them questions. Be curious about what they do, you know, assume positive intent is, is, is next and then walk in their shoes. You know, how many times have we had jobs where we say, oh, those guys in the ivory tower, and they, you know, they give us their quote. They have no idea what it's going to take to, to, to get that done. You know? So I think the seeing part is, is, is very much about curiosity and asking questions and, and say, Hey, look, I think I'm pretty smart, but I think as a collecting group, we'd be a lot smarter, you know, together. The 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 uh, the seeing and then and then delivering it. One of the things that we laugh about a lot, me and Adrian, is is tailor it to the individual. You know, so often we think I love watches. Everybody loves watches. I'll, I'll never forget. I used to sell recognition programs, and I remember meeting with a, a woman of a, a smaller smaller bank, and she said, "Hey, I need some help. We've got a a, a fifty year anniversary group, which is." Almost wow. unheard of now. I wow. said, how many people have you got in that group? You know, and she said, yeah. So we, we want to recognize them for 50 years of loyalty. I'm thinking, oh my gosh, these are people who got to be in their 70s, right? Still working. 
I said, well, what, what, what do you think you should do? She goes, well, a pewter bowl. I think we should present them with a pewter bowl. And I was kind of curious. I said, now, well, why? Like, how did you get to pewter bowl? And she said, well, everybody loves pewter bowls. And I went, huh. I, I didn't know that. I didn't <laughs> I must know. Be the exception. That, yeah. Well, I didn't know that that I love pewter bowls. I mean, I don't own any. I've never really given it much thought. And so we, we have that, you know, because I love it, you love it. And and again, back to that curiosity when you get to know your people, some people are very driven and they don't want time off. They want an extra assignment. You know, they don't want the spotlight of a big banquet. They'd rather be able to take their family to dinner and expense it. You know, so once you know what motivates people, what their desires are, what really, as my mother would say, melts their chocolate, right? You you can create really meaningful moments. Some people want to be on stage in front of the entire company and receive an award. Other people, it's they'd rather have everybody sign a card and it'd be one on one in your office and 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 down like that. And knowing that difference makes makes a world of difference. On the expressing part, we've got. Do it now, do it often, and don't be afraid. You know, do it now. You'll think you'll remember later. You won't. And primacy recency, you know that from your psych 101 class that you took in university your freshman year, right? See, recency, you, you recognize that the closer the gratitude to the behavior, the more likely it is to be to be repeated, right? And it's like we always talk about the Gatorade bath at the end of the bowl game or the or the Super Bowl. They do it right at the end of the game, right? They don't do it two weeks later when they see the the coach at the mall with his family. <laughs> it's just not the same, right? That primacy, recency. And do it often. To your point with your friends about expressions of love, I, I love you. I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't ever leave your friend now without expressing that, that gratitude. And somehow we, you know, we, we understand that in our personal lives. We, we come into the workplace, we say, wow, you can overdo it. You know, you can get too much recognition, right? It becomes trite. It becomes, you know, it, it, it loses its value. You go, really? You think so? I go, yeah. I said, how many times do you tell your spouse or your partner that you love them? Oh, 10 times a day. Ever get old? <laughs> right? Can you ever hear that too much? So what if you, with your partner, decided that instead of telling them that you love them every day, that you just had a year-end banquet? How would that go over? <laughs> Trust me, you know, you'd be heading to counseling very, very quickly. And, and of course, it is business. It's a little different. I always say, look, I love you in your personal life translates to thank you. And, and don't get that mixed up because that'll cause HR all kind of problems. You know, the, the message, though, is if you do it right, and it is a little different, you know, if you've been happily married, like my wife and I are going to celebrate 40 years next year. And my parents were married for 65. You know, my the greatest lesson my dad ever taught me was don't let your wife ever think for a nanosecond that she isn't adored, that she isn't loved, that she isn't brilliant, that she isn't talented, and that and that you're not the luckiest guy in the world, you know? And um, and I, that was one lesson I think I've learned, I've learned well. Well, it's the same thing in the workplace. Now, you substitute thank you. And rather than that general praise that when you've loved somebody for 40 years, they get immediately, specificity is important. It's not great job, great job. We even have a, a mantra that says general praise has no impact. Is that, oh, you're the best, you're the best, you're the Tower of Pisa, you know, whatever. It's like, hey, that really was an extraordinary bit of customer service there. That that customer came in and they were itching for a fight. 
And you sat them down and you walked it through and you explained the warranties and the guarantees. You did. And they went out with a smile on their face. Boy, that's a customer. When we talk about extraordinary customer service, we're talking about you, Don. Nobody does it better than you. Well, who doesn't? And by the way, that takes a minute, right? Out of your time. Who doesn't want that kind of affirmation? Who doesn't want that kind of? And can you do that too much? The answer is, let me jump to the spoiler alert. No, you can't. <laughs> of all the surveys we look at when we say I've been recognized for my work in the last seven days, or I feel valued and recognized at work, it's almost universally one of the lowest scores. So if you think you're doing it too much, odds are you're probably doing it about it's right. It's free. It's, and it's free. It's, I think I it's, I think it's you know, a leader superpower. If you can get it right, it's it's free. It reinforces great behaviors, behavior that you want repeated. It's and, and it's limitless. You know, you don't run out of it. So your buddy had the ten pennies in the left pocket, and at the end of the day, you know, he had ten pennies in the right pocket. He could have put fifteen. You know, yeah, <laughs> he yeah. didn't have to be you know sticking with just ten. Chester, a couple comments on on those approaches. The one is on the solicit and act on input. The soliciting part is easy. The acting part is what is expected. And and I thought that you really nailed it in the book and said that you, know, you won't be able to act on everything, but acknowledging the, the input is important as well. And maybe even explaining, well, we can't do this at this time, I think is, is really an important one. And, and the one that I wanted to just dive into a little bit more as walk in their shoes. So you talked a lot about leaders who go out onto the floor or hospital administrators or these types of jobs where everybody's in the same place. But how do we walk in their shoes in this hybrid or remote work or working from home type environment? Well, you, you just simply decide to do it. You know, Ritz-Carlton, Marriott, and so on, many hotel chains will actually have their executives spend a day in the hotel doing every job. You know, go change the beds. You know, in the hospital, go empty a bedpan. You know, Texas Roadhouse is one of our favorite cultures. And, you know, you can't be an executive at Texas Roadhouse if you haven't done every job in the restaurant. You've washed the dishes, you've worked behind the bar, you've swept up, you've worked the register, you know, you've You've served the food. You've you've worked. You, you know you got to be careful in the kitchen. <laughs> you know, gets to that. You know, and and the point is, and, and I think that's beyond brilliant. You know, Kent Taylor, the founder, insisted on that because he never wanted his executives to make demands of the people that work so hard every day. And if you've ever worked in a restaurant, that is hard work. That is hard work, and they get very little affirmation. You know, when people are at restaurants, they're very quick to point out all the things that are wrong with the meal and very slow to point out why it was so amazing. You know, I, 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 we're just kind of wired that way as, as people, unfortunately. And so literally you had to do every job so that when you started to make demands of any restaurant or you know, stores, as they call them, that you knew exactly what it would take to move the needle on that dial. And I think it's brilliant. So often we bring in executives from other industries and maybe they they understand the numbers, they understand the spreadsheets, they may understand the industry. Do they understand what is the day-to-day? Because if they don't, you're, you're in peril. So you say, how do you, how do you start that? You demand it. You say, this is, this is part of being a leader here. You have to go do those jobs. And by the way, Alan Mulally is one of the, our great leaders we got to know, the, the guy that saved the Ford Motor Company. And Alan was great. He said, you know, I've never fired anybody. 
I just tell them, look, this is how we do it. This is our culture. Now, I'm going to give you time to adapt. And you can choose to fit within these constraints, you know, the freedom of constraints. This is how we do it. And within this, you can do whatever you want within these parameters, right? Integrity is, is one of those parameters, right? He said, if you can't do it, that's okay. That's okay. I'll still love you and I'll wish you well. You can't work here anymore. I mean, that'll be obvious and, and it'll be obvious to you and me. And he said, you know, every time they've either bought in or they self-selected. And I love that approach. Here's how we do it. Now, if you can't, that's okay. It's not for everybody. And I'll, we'll still love you and we'll wish you well in your next job. <laughs> One of the things that I really loved about your book was the reinforcing of the core values, which is what you're talking about with Alan and Ford. And, you know, I'll just share a quick story because you talk about Ken Chenault in the book and I worked for American Express. That was where I started my career. And Ken was president. He wasn't CEO at that time. It was Harvey Golub who was CEO. And what they did was each year they would recognize people from all around the world. They would fly them into New York people who lived the core values of the company. Harvey would be on stage with them and probably Ken too. And they would acknowledge five or 10 people from around the world who demonstrated and lived the values of the company. You don't think that the rest of the people in the company understood, knew the values of the organization, how important they were to the executive team and everybody throughout the organization. I just, it was one of my favorite things about working at American Express. And I tell that story all of the time. It's just, it's so powerful. Yeah. You know, you can't see me. I'm, I'm just grinning ear to ear. My son works at American Express now and, and has worked there long enough that when Ken, I call him Ken, we've met. So we're dear friends, right? Ken Chanel was the, the CEO there and, and my son Carter adored him. By the way, was Ken Chanel demanding of his people? Absolutely. I mean, you worked there. Of course he was. And he took American Express to just record heights. And, and it's continued under their, under their new CEO, who's very much a Kenshinal disciple. Great, um, great leader. He, he was a yeah, phenomenal the, the, leader and so respected. And, and Yeah. And the blue box values, to your point. Let's not forget what we do and how we do it and that respect for each other. And it, it is, and by the way, I mean great place to work. Do they take care of each other? Oh, yeah. I mean, financial institutions don't have that reputation, unfortunately, of really caring and taking care of their people. American Express does to the nines. And 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 do you think it's one of the reasons they're so successful? Of course, you can connect those dots. Of course, you can. Take It Home was my favorite chapter of the book. And what I really see is that gratitude is a mindset. It shouldn't be saved only for work. And you, you say, you know, if you're showing gratitude at work and feeling the sense of gratitude, take it home with you. Show your people in your community and your family, et cetera. But what I also took away from that, and I wonder if you agree with it, is if you are creating this culture of gratitude within your organization, then you are uplifting your people so when they go home, so it's not just about you as a leader taking it home, but they go home and they're able to practice this as well. And we benefit as a society. That's what I take away from it. And that's why I think it's so powerful. Yeah. And you know, it, it, it's interesting because when we wrote that part of the book and we sold it to Harper Business, we were a little worried about that chapter because it's not a business chapter. 
you know, it's not about, you know, how do you attract and retain people and so on. And yet, and Ken Chanel was, was one. And Alan Mulally was another, you know, and, and Gary Ridge from WD-40, who we adore. They all said, by the way, these are principles that work in the workplace and it will make you a better leader. It'll make you a better team. It'll make you a better company. Don't leave all that goodness at work. Take it home with you. And they shared with us their, their family rituals. Alan, you know, in the back of the book says, I love, love, love this book. He said, I led with gratitude at Boeing. I led with gratitude, you know, at Ford. And we lead with gratitude in our homes. So yeah, you know, as Adrian and I do this executive coaching, I, I make every coachee write down this quote. And I say, look, you do what we're, we talk about. We hold each other accountable. You will be a better leader. There's a formula there. It works. If you're, if you're courageous and humble and disciplined, it'll work. Now, if all we do is make you a better business leader, we will have failed you. We want you to be the person that you want to be. So write this down. No success in business can ever compensate for failure in your home. David O. McKay, right? No success in business can ever compensate for failure in your home. Again, what do you want in your tombstone? Man, that guy could close a deal, right? Or the best friend anybody could hope for. The best father, the best you know, husband, the best wife, the best community volunteer. I mean, that's what you want in your tombstone. That's what you want to be remembered. And to your point, you can do all that at work and have a phenomenal work life and career. If you don't take it home, what was the point? You and Adrian Gostick wrote another book called Anxiety of Work at Work. We talked about it a little bit. What advice do you have for leaders and employees to help them handle stress and uncertainty? Because this really gets to the topic of resilience. There's still a huge stigma attached to mental health that somehow if I break my leg, I can take time off, not a problem. But if I, you know, mentally get overwhelmed and stressed out and ask for that time off, somehow I'm diminished. I'm not tough enough. I don't have enough grit. I don't have enough resilience, right? And so what do we do because of that stigma, because of that fear, we won't talk about it. Do you know 90% of employees will not talk to their immediate supervisor about mental health? 90%. So the, the best advice I can give you is you've got to normalize the conversation. This is a normal human emotion. We've all been anxious. When it gets to the point where it's an anxiety disorder, which is what we're seeing more and more in the workplace, it's a mental health, it, it's a health issue. It's not a mental health issue, it's a, it's a health issue. So normalize the conversation, destigmatize it. And the third thing is have empathy. If you asked me five years ago, what were the attributes of great leaders? I'd say, oh, a great communicator, great motivator, you know, gets things done. Right now, it's one attribute and one attribute only, and it's empathy. Now, how do you express that? And that is share your story. In order to make it safe, we always look to our leaders. If I want to be a leader like Ken Chenault, I do what Ken Chenault does. If I want to be a leader like Ellen Malali, I'm going to do what Ellen Malali does. Well, if you're the leader... And you have that moment where you can be honest and truthful and vulnerable and say, look, I don't know exactly what it is you're going through. I've been through stuff like that. Let me tell you when I was in my 20s and we had projects and we worked 18-hour days for five weeks in a row and we were completely burned out. I so wished, I, I so wish now that back then I had a leader that would say, hey, we got to take a collective deep breath here. We're killing each other. And I want to let you know that we're going to do that now with you. 
and it's not going to impact your promotion. It's not going to impact your raise. If you had a broken leg, we'd take care of it. You're, you're stressed out. You're burned out. Let's just take care of it and share your story. Make it safe. It's so important because the rate of change is not going to slow down anytime soon. We'll continue to have elevated levels of stress. I'm so grateful you wrote that book. Yeah, it's, it's really important. Thank you. And, and, and we think it's made a difference for a lot of people. We actually have a podcast, Anxiety at Work, where we bring in executives and people talk about it. The, the, the thing about this, this topic is the latest numbers from, from Forbes, 91% of employees right now consider themselves somewhat, if not totally, burned out right now. So if you're listening to this and you say, yeah, but not my people, guess again, <laughs> it's nine out of 10 of your people, right? Yeah. And by the way, your top performers are probably your most anxious because they never want to let you down. They never say no. They'll always deliver to the detriment of everybody around them to their mental and, and physical health. So yeah, if you don't think it's an issue, just step back and take a look at the numbers, be a little more sensitive, be a little more empathetic share your story, and you're going to find that if it's not your number one issue, it's 1B. One, one Where can people find out more about you and, and your company? Thecultureworks.com is our website. Everything is, you can find out about us there. Follow me on LinkedIn. We've got a wonderful bi-monthly newsletter called The Gratitude Journal. We're so gratified. We've got 260,000 people that subscribe to that newsletter. It's, it's, it's quite wonderful. And then lastly, our, our podcast, Anxiety at Work. So thecultureworks.com, LinkedIn, and Anxiety at Work. Chester, thank you for your time today. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. And thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. This is the final episode of season eight of 12 Geniuses. We had a dozen marvelously insightful interviews on the topic of leadership and I want to thank our guests for sharing their wisdom and expertise with us. We'll be back with season nine starting in February when we explore the topic of resilience with another exceptional lineup of guests. Thanks to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.